All right, let's start in verse 1, Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. As we men sit in this room together, it is helpful for us to know what God's commands are for women. Um, We interact with women every day, whether it's our wives, whether it's women in the church, whether it's our children, um, even for our sons as they start moving towards um, relationships. It is very helpful for us to know what God's commands are for women. And we need to align our leadership in a way that lines up with what God wants in women. And so the first question I ask is, um, when you think about how you've led the women in your lives, if married men, this is probably most important to you or men who are raising daughters. Um, As you think about how you're leading your wife, are you looking at God's word? Are you looking at this passage or Proverbs 31? to guide you in how you lead your wife? How do you shepherd your heart towards an understanding of what God wants in your household from the woman in, in the women in your household? And there, there's implications of this. Um, as you love your wife or your daughter, how do you expose them to Scripture and to the God's design for them? I want to be better at embracing this, these passages and not just know my wife. Like, in my household, and this is, this is a shortfall for me, but in my household, I hear my wife talk about going through a Titus study and trying to line her life up to that. And before this week, I couldn't tell you what aspects of that she was actually doing and where she was shepherding her heart and where she looks at this passage and says, you know... I have a hard time with gossip um, and I need to change that or or kindness is the area where I'm really trying to focus on and I want to grow in that and when we look at the world right now these attributes don't line up with what they're learning from outside of our home Um, when you look at television when you look at at the, the view of what a household looks like when you look at everything going on with gender equality and all the everything going on (laughs) um it it just doesn't line up with scripture and so that gives us a stronger call in our households to align our homes with scripture because they're going to hear it everywhere else the wrong thing um our loving leadership needs to guide our wife in a way that they're adorned with the gospel. Um, and there's a huge benefit to this that's not just honoring God. Uh, turn to your left just one page. It's probably actually on the same page. It's Titus 1. Um, and let's start in verse 10. It says, For there are many rebellious men 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. My question in that passage is, where's the leadership in the home? If these men are coming in and upsetting entire families, then the home is not being led well in a way that the families recognize that false doctrine is coming in. When we're in our home, we need to be leading that so that our families aren't upset by what they're seeing on the outside. So as we kind of transition, as we think about just generally where we're pushing our lives towards and what we're shepherding in our home, I have a few questions that are um, pretty broad, but hopefully will help you just kind of talk, think through how you're approaching the shepherding of your wife and your daughters in your home. Um, the first question is kind of what I've said, but how aware have you made yourself of this passage and what it means for the women in your life? Um, if you're at home and you're a child in your home, how are you helping your sister in this? How are you helping your mother in this, um, as you look for a spouse, what is what is attractive to you? Um, as you prayerfully consider marriage, what are the things that you need to change in the way that you look towards women? How aware do you think the women in your home are of what this passage means to them? And then just really practical, has your wife heard you express gratefulness for her growth in these areas? Um, I can tell you that the last few years, I've seen spiritual growth in Jenna more than the first 19 years we've been married. Um, and I'm not sure she knows I know that. Um, she might if she listens back on this. We'll see. <laughs> That's, it's just not helpful to not communicate with your spouse around what you see in their life around this, these areas um, if we look back at two five. And it says, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Um, the importance lies in the honoring of God's um, word. It seems kind of intuitive. But if I'm not shepherding my wife there, I'm dishonoring God's word. If you have young kids at home, your wife's care in the home, I don't think you have to worry about her being a worker at home, whether she has a day job or not. She's working hard to care for the kids. Um, if you have older kids at home, she's still working hard to care for the kids. Um, managing a household is so much more than I think we kind of think about it being. Um, and so how do you encourage your wife towards that? How do you help her carve out time so that she can shepherd her heart? Um, I know, especially when our kids were young, 
there were many Saturdays where I would just say, go to Starbucks. Uh, we didn't have sagebrush yet. Um, but I would say, go, <laughs> go to Starbucks and just spend time in God's word and I'll cover the kids. Like, you need to get out and separate yourself from this. And that was super helpful. And I could, like, every time I did that, it blessed me because as she grew and shepherded her heart, the whole tenor of the household was better. And um, it was a lot better for me to spend those however long caring for the kids than it was um, doing whatever project I was planning on doing instead. And so my encouragement is to really be intentional about carving out time for your spouse to be able to shepherd their hearts. It's one thing to make time for yourself to shepherd your heart, and that's great and that's needed, and we all have to do that. Um, as a leader in our home, we need to make sure that our wives have the time too. And then I guess the last note I have here is just ensure consistency in thanking your wife for the way that she cares for the home. Um, thankfulness and communication of thankfulness goes such a long way. It's a pretty thankless job in many ways. Um, it, the 403rd time you've asked your kid to clean their room, you kind of lose the thankfulness of, of continuing to shepherd your kids those ways. And... Um, and they get that. To, to have their husband recognize the work they're putting in means a lot to them. And so I would encourage you for that, to do that. Um, that's, I mean, I've got 27 other questions and not the time for it. So um, I would just encourage us all, as we look at Titus 2, look at Proverbs 31, have this stuff memorized. Um, this is good stuff to be able to recognize as we interact with our spouses. So. So we're going to be looking at kind of four different sections in Scripture and going over a series of lessons um, that are consistent through those sections. And so I think in your notes you have eight lessons. Do you have eight lessons from Scripture? No, I can't read it. It's just... <laughs> hey, so that's not on me. <laughs> it was probably really small in the um, email that I sent to Allie, though. I think the original is probably six or seven pages. Now that I look at it. <laughs> yeah. So I've actually kind of summarized it into six because I feel like um, four, five, and six all relate directly to repentance. Um, and so I want to, I, I just kind of highlight that one as repentance in my notes. So if you hear me say six lessons, that's because I've summarized four, five, and six into one. Um, and so I want to look at these lessons first and kind of talk through what this is. And then as we trace through um, God appointing a king to Israel, and then we're going to look at Saul, David, and Solomon, um, aspects of their life, and see how um, they're both good and bad examples in different cases of these, of these lessons. And so the first lesson really is centered around pride. And it's, it's intentional that this is first, because I think pride is the root of all kind of poor heart shepherding. Um, and in this uh, this case in particular, it's when you're in a season of success, pride is fostered. Um, I know in my own life, when things are going well at work, I give myself all the credit. Um, and so, um, looking at First Peter five five, 
it says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you close yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Where is the default direction that your heart goes in, this, in success? Does it go towards humility and recognition of what God has done for us? Or does it go towards pride and recognition of what we've done for ourselves? Um, that phrase, God is opposed to the proud, is scary. Um, because I know many times in my life, my default response is pride. And I have to shepherd my heart away from that. Um, which leads us to the second one, and that's remember the deceitfulness of your own heart. Uh, your own heart will lead you in a place that, that is not helpful. It will lead you towards pride if you don't shepherd it. Jeremiah 17, 9. So I have a lot of verses. I'm not, I'm going to read them. If we wait for everyone to turn there, we're going to be here till the, like, tomorrow morning. Um, and so just kind of listen. The references should be in your notes. Um, and we'll go from there. And so Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the whole basis of what we're doing here with Build, is a recognition that our heart is deceitful and we need to shepherd it. And so we can't let ourselves forget that. Um, and then the third lesson is we need to counsel ourselves away from the justification of sin. Um, as we look at Saul, we'll see that very clearly in how he justified sin. Um, and kind of jumping the gun, that first Samuel fifteen twenty one is, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice for the Lord your God at, at Gilgah. If you remember... Um, and we'll get to this in a, in a little bit, but um, God commanded them to kill everything, and they took it, and here it says they took it for sacrifice to God. Well, they're justifying taking the spoils of war by saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice this, so it's okay. It's disobedience. Um, and so where do we justify our sin in an effort to, to make it seem less? Um, I know... A lot of times I will, I will justify impatience by saying it was a really busy day and I'm tired. And so in my own mind, it's okay for me to snap at my kids. Um, or I'll, I'll, there's many ways we can look at our life. And, and if you listen to confession, listen to your own confession of sin. You usually put qualifiers in there. Um, which leads kind of into the repentance one. Um, the overarching kind of lesson I have is to foster a heart of continual intentional repentance. And there's three ways to do that, which is four, five, and six in your notes. Um, don't confuse external repentance with biblical repentance. Um, and we'll really hit on that hard in Saul. Um, the next one, look for the way of escape when faced with a situation in which you have demonstrated weakness. That's so helpful. First um, Corinthians 10:13 says, "No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. it it's important for us to recognize that God's not going to let us be tempted beyond what we can withstand, but also there's a way of escape. If I recognize that I am prone to anger, then what am I going to do in my life to protect myself from that? If I recognize that I'm prone to lust, am I going to leave the internet gateway at my home open to anything and everything coming into my house? You shouldn't. We can't. we got to put safeguards around our lives to protect ourselves, um, and it's pride that thinks we don't need those. The next one is when you fall into sin, remind yourself that the one who mourns over their sin will be comforted. And that's Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, We talked a few weeks ago about repentance. We talked a lot about sorrow. Um, We have to look at our sin with sorrow and mourn over our sin and redirect our thinking. These kind of build on each other. I keep saying, which leads to, number five, shepherding. When faced with sin, remind yourself that the one who thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. We will get satisfaction not from things in this world, but from a righteous living. You know, that's the the buyer's remorse or constantly chasing the next thing. This world will never give give us satisfaction. Um... But if we thirst and hunger for righteousness, that's where our satisfaction comes from. And where do we get that? From God's word. And the last one is is just a helpful reminder that we can't conceal anything from God. Um, you know, as we, we walk our way through sinful living, um, just because we we don't, I don't know, we, we just can't hide from God. We have to recognize that our life is an open book and and walk that way and shepherd our hearts towards holiness. So those are overarching lessons. We're going to touch on those actually throughout. Um, and so let's turn to Deuteronomy 17. And we're going to read about God's design for Israel. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 20. Starting in verse 14. It says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he shall learn to fear the Lord his God, 
by carefully observing all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So God gave Israel guidelines for their kings in this passage. It's, it's a lot of foreshadowing here of what actually happens, and, um, and yet the commands are clear. And when you look at verse 14, you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. Um, turning back a couple of pages in Deuteronomy 14, God told Israel that he would be their king. He said, You are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God's design for Israel's governance was that he would be their king. Um, He would give them the law, he would give them protection from other nations, and he would give them peace. And this was also that the surrounding nations would see the stark distinction of them, and they would be set apart. But Israel said, I want a king. I want to be like other nations. Um, This was pride welling up in them. And so God said, okay, I'll I'll give you a king, but here's some stipulations around what that is. And if he doesn't follow these stipulations, um, there will be repercussions. So what are those? He shouldn't multiply horses for himself. 16 and 17 say that. He shouldn't multiply wives for himself. And nor shall he greatly increase in silver and gold for himself. Um, Spoiler alert, they all did that. But God wanted a king who would daily find his treasure in the Lord, not in any material possessions. And so he gave a guideline to to Israel for their kings on how they would protect themselves against these things. And it was daily heart shepherding. It was like... The guidelines, that, the, the practice that we talk about here in Build was what God gave Israel's kings to be able to do to, to align their hearts with him so that they could lead his nation. This isn't new, Grace Bible Church speak. <laughs> like, this is exactly what um, God commanded Israel. And when you look, like, let's look back at what that looks like um, in that prescription. Look at verse 18. Now it shall come about that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. What a cool commandment. Um, I know when I write things out, I remember them better. Um, I almost never look back at my notes when I handwrite it out because it just puts it into my memory. Um, and so he's, he's commanding the king of Israel to handwrite God's precepts on a scroll. And I love that it's in the sight of the or in the presence of Levitical priests because it gives him an opportunity to recognize that he's doing it well. That that there's not a mistake in this. And the priests are overlooking that he's he's transcribing this information in a way that will be clear. Um, that is a tool that God gave the kings to be able to shepherd their hearts. And you keep going. It says, It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. 
daily heart shepherding was a command for the kings of Israel. And what's the result of that? He'll learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of his law and these statutes. Where'd I go in my notes? The daily intake of God's word keeps a man humble in his dealings with his neighbors and resolved to obey what he is reading. And then there's a promise. It says that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. God's design was that Israel would forever be a light to the dark nations. And so that was God's design for Israel's king. Now we get to see how it played out. Uh, And so let's start with Saul. And this is, I mean, I actually, years ago, our small group did a study of David. I think we spent a year studying Saul and never actually got past, like, when Saul died, that was the end of our study of David. Um, I'm I'm not kidding. (laughs) We're like, let's move on. It's been a couple years. We haven't gotten to it. And so I I hope to be a little faster than that (laughs) this morning. Um, I think that took, how long did that take, Shag? Forever. (laughs) It was was so good. I loved that study. Um, But um, so turning to Saul. Let's go look at 1 Samuel 11 real quick. The context here is Saul was made the king of Israel. Other nations are oppressing Israel. A common way to do this was to lay siege against them and to starve them. And one of the nations did that, and it was Ammon. Um, The verses we're going to read show how Saul became prominent in Israel. So I'm going to kind of bounce around here. First Samuel eleven one. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. The next couple of verses describe how Ammon sought to oppress Israel. So moving down to verse four, then the messages came to messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And then verse six it says, and the spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words. And he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them to pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out of out after Saul and after Salmon, Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon them, and they came out as one man. And in verse 11 it says, The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. So in this section, Israel was vulnerable, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people because of Saul's willingness to stand up to Israel's oppressors. Saul possesses some level of military strategy and wisdom in verse 11. And so Saul is well positioned to serve as Israel's king, and the Holy Spirit has come upon him. He has the respect and the following of the people of Israel. So a little bit of context here. 400 years before Saul, the Lord had released Israel from slavery in Egypt. Israel was journeying to the promised land. 
and Amalek set himself against Israel. Jumping ahead to chapter 15, um, the Lord is going to exercise his vengeance on Amalek. So this is 400 years later, God's ready to exercise his vengeance. And this story, I think, is familiar to all of us. Um, In verse 3, it says, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That is scary. Um, He was commanded to utterly destroy everything that belongs to Amalek. Not to spare anything, but to kill the men, women, infants, and children, and all of the sheep, oxen, and donkey. But Saul had the privilege of being used as an instrument in the Lord's hand as the Lord executes his vengeance on the nations who opposed him. So looking at 1 Samuel 15, 7 through 9, it says, So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agad, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lamb, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Whoops. They didn't obey. They recognized, um, they did what they thought was helpful and didn't follow God's command. I would think it would be hard to obey that command, though. Wiping out everything, um, seeing all this good, helpful stuff, um, but it didn't matter. Saul wasn't shepherding his heart in the way that he needed to. Saw the spoils of war and took them. Uh, and Saul was more than happy to let this happen. It wasn't the people did this without Saul knowing, but it says, but Saul and the people spared Agag. He was happy to destroy everything despised and worthless. However, he was not willing to destroy everything utterly. So on the heels of great success, Saul deliberately asserted his own will over God's commands. And here's where it gets really scary, which is when you look at Saul's response. So looking, um, jumping ahead to verse 20, Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Um, I mean, he's lying to himself. He's lying to Samuel. He's justifying his own sin and not even looking at what really happened as being obedient. I think that's a trap we all get into. Um, He started blame shifting, he started justifying, and he asserted the rightness of his own thinking. And then when you look at verse 24, this is a great example of unbiblical repentance. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. Um, and, and jumping to verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of, of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. 
he's just looking to transition out of, this is the, I'm sorry I got in trouble, repentance. Um, he's begging for honor, not recognizing the brokenness of his own sin. This is contrived worship. How many people here think that when Saul was taking those fatted calves and the best of the best, his real intention was, oh man, I am totally going to go sacrifice this to God later? It, it absolutely wasn't. Um, he saw good things and said, well, this will help us. I'm going to keep it. So keep keeping on moving down. Verse 26 says, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Ouch. And verse 35 says, And the Lord regretted, meaning the Lord had much sorrow that he made Saul king over Israel. Saul's repentance wasn't a true repentance. Um, in many ways because of the response and in many ways because of the way he ended his life. And if we turn a couple of pages over and look at verse 30, or chapter 31, verses 3 and 4, Saul was in battle, and the battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it, for he was greatly afraid. And so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. At a human level, Saul took his own life. But from God's perspective, he was removing an unfaithful leader to make room for a man after his own heart. So going back to page one and looking at those lessons that we need to know, where did some of these areas come into play? Saul saw his ways as better than God's. That was pride. Saul ignored the commands and what and did what he thought was right. He was not shepherding his heart. Saul justified his sin. He kept the best and justified it with the argument of this being best for sacrifice. Um, and he didn't follow a biblical form of repentance. He actually contrasted biblical repentance pretty well. Um, and he followed that with poor heart shepherding and a wrong view of God. And if we had time to go through the chapters in between chapter 15 and 31, we would see time and time again of him seeking God in many wrong ways. Um, he didn't do what was commanded of him. He didn't take what was written that he probably did write that out the way that it was commanded. But he didn't daily shepherd his heart to be in alignment with God. The Holy Spirit left him. And he ended his life in suicide. I know someone that did that. Uh, he used to come to this church. Um, he was a good friend of mine. And watched him not shepherd his heart well. He eventually left this church. Left the faith. Moved I think he became Catholic at some point and committed suicide a few years ago. Um, you could feel anger when you walked around him, and he never shepherded his heart away from that, and it had a tragic end. Um, 
it's scary. It didn't look that bad at first. And it grew for five, six, seven years, probably his whole life. But from my perspective, five, six, seven years, and just kept growing and growing and growing. Now he has a family without a dad. Um, sin is scary. Um, little sin that we perceive as little sin is scary. We need to keep our heart in God's word. We need to be inclined to study God's word. We need to not trust our own assessment of things. Um, we need each other to be able to step into our, each other's lives. And we need to listen when exhorted. Saul didn't do any of those things, and his life ended tragically. Going back to Deuteronomy 17, <coughs> verse 20, um, so that his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. I named my oldest son Jonathan. He's back there. Um, because I love the story of Jonathan in Scripture. Um, Jonathan should have been king, except for the sin of his father. And yet he recognized the sin of his father, recognized God's plan for David, and loved David and sacrificed everything about himself so that David could become king. Um, it's such a sweet story of a man who who did follow God's heart. He was he was probably worthy of being king of Israel, but the sin of his father took that from him, um, and he was okay with that. Um, and so, yeah, I I love the story of Jonathan, and I think it's important to recognize that our sin can destroy, have ramifications way beyond our years. So let's move over to the next king. Where am I at? Oh yeah, this will be good. Um, the next one is David. So 1 Samuel 17. Let's just read verse 46. <coughs> Israel is in a season of discipline from the Lord. The Philist, the Philist, eh, let me try again. The Philistines are God's chosen instrument. I think I might need to make my print bigger too. Um, so 1 Samuel 17, 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David had absolute confidence in God's power and ability to defend his own reputation. And David is pleased to be a representative of God. And you see that throughout his early life. Um, but there was a warning back in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will be turned away. Um, and his heart gets turned away. And so let's look at 2 Samuel 11. This is a story that we're familiar with. I even touched on it a few lessons ago. Um, let's 
verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11 says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. It was the time when kings go out to battle, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around and on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said, I am pregnant. David already had multiple wives. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He let his heart be distracted, and his heart was turned away from what he was supposed to be doing. And with a heart already turned away, sin wasn't far. It was only a matter of time before this weakened condition turned into sin. I think I'm changing back and forth which way I face those. Um, so David sinned, and it didn't stop there. Um, he didn't recognize this one-time sin and go, oh man, I need to repent of this and turn. Instead, he just let sin build on sin, build on sin. Um, and so... 11.8 says, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. And then verse 10 says, Now then, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And then verse 14, Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He'd written in the letter, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So David's first response was to try to hide his sin. He had multiple attempts to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that the pregnancy would become Uriah's or be perceived as Uriah's child. That didn't work. So then he decided to murder him. Um, so he sent him out to battle, left him there. Can you imagine Uriah's end? He's out in battle on a front line after being devoted to his king, and, he's, and everyone leaves him behind. I can't imagine what he was thinking at the end. Um, I'm certain he wasn't thinking we'd be talking about this right now. So then, as we talked about a few weeks ago, Nathan came to David and appealed to his conscience by giving him the story of the analogy of what he had done. The traveler stayed with the rich man who had great herds and flocks, and the rich man took one from the poor man. Um, and you remember David's response. He burned with anger against the man, and Nathan said, you are the man. And then David's response to that was, I have sinned against the Lord. This is all in 12 verses 5 through 13, give or take. This is where David's story starts to turn from Saul's. Um, they both sinned against God. They both had clear commandments from God on what they should do and how they should be living their life, and they both opposed those commandments. But David's second response was very different than Saul's. David acknowledged his sin and had genuine repentance. 
Let's turn to Psalm 51. Let's just start reading. This is David's psalm that he wrote after the prophet Nathan came to him. David said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you... You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David appealed for grace, aware that his sin put him in a place that merited no favor from God. And he was aware that his true offense was towards God. Saul gave lip service, but David was a worshiper. So jumping ahead kind of to the end of David's life, in 1 Kings chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read. As David's time to die draw near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. So that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David knew the most important truth to impart to a son was to teach the importance of submitting to the Lord. So what are we looking at those six lessons? What do we what do we know about the way David lived his life? Um, his sin started with the way he positioned himself in front of temptation. He took the I don't need safeguards form of pride, kept himself home during battle, and let himself look. And that was a step towards a series of sins. He fostered what he saw in his heart and allowed sin to just take hold for a while. Um, He had multiple heart wives before that he allowed his heart to be distractive what what in your life do you let distract you from worship is it a busy work schedule could even be your kids you put so much focus on your kids that you forget to worship god Um, there are ways that we can allow our heart to be distracted Um, and then he kept hiding and justifying his sin watching it turn into more sin Except with David, there was a second response, and that was repentance. And we look at Psalm 51 as an example of what that is. Um, And we contrast that form of repentance with Saul's form of repentance. And and it gives us a view of what we need to be doing to shepherd our own heart. And then you see the heart of a repentant man as he hands down commands to his son and says to Solomon how he should be living his life, shepherding the next generation. So let's look at Solomon. Um, I'm going to do this one briefly, just so that we're not here forever. Uh, 
So I'm going to read through 1 Kings, uh, several verses in there. So starting in verse 7, it says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. So give your servant an understanding, a heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And God said to him, Because you have asked for this thing, and have not asked for long life, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that you may, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall no one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. Solomon asked for wisdom and showed a heart to desire things of God, and God granted it. Um, I love verse 11 where it says, God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, riches, or the life of your enemies. Um, You just asked for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom and riches. Um, And so then Solomon, in jumping over to Numbers 33, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite of Jericho, saying, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figure stone and destroy all the molten images and demolish all their high places. The idols were already in the promised land before Israel got there, and the Lord knew the effect of those idols would have on Israel and draw their affections from him. I bring that up because Solomon was not truly a singular worshiper of God. Um, so let's look at that. In 3.3, we hit the compromise where Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burnt incense on high places. He started merging different religions. He was happy to keep the statutes as David had put, but he also held fast to the worship of other gods. Solomon was unwilling to give undistracted devotion to the Lord. As much as anything else, Solomon's heart led him to share his affections for the Lord with other gods. The weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. This is 1 Kings 10. Besides that from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of Arabs and the governors of the country, Solomon was willing to just jeopardize his trust in the Lord and put his confidence in his wealth. So he started worshiping other gods. He started putting confidence in wealth. And as we all know, he had many, many wives. Um, He had all the wisdom in the world, but he pursued other things that were not of God. Um, These, well, in 1 Kings 10.26, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. Remember when we were talking in Deuteronomy 17, 17? He said not to gather horses for himself. Um, He gathered horses for himself. He was accumulating wealth in ways that weren't in alignment with what God had commanded for the kings of Israel. 
and he gave all of his affections to women. That's discussed in 1 Kings 11. Um, he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and the wives turned his heart away. His affections were so devoted towards these women that he had no affection for God. So what was Solomon's response to this? It's kind of an interesting one because scripture doesn't clearly say, oh, it doesn't have a moment of repentance like he does, it does with Saul and with David. But if you look at the way that Solomon shepherded his son, um, there was some form of repentance in his life. And so looking at Ecclesiastes 7.26, and I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. At the end of his life, Solomon was able to see the true nature of the foreign women, whereas they were at one point beautiful and attractive to him. Now he sees what they really and always were, snares and nets, constraints that rob a man of his affections for the Lord. These were women who worshipped other gods and pulled his focus away from the one true God. And then Ecclesiastes 12 the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Solomon had no fear of God when he was accumulating his wealth, his wives, his concubines, but at the end of his life he had sobriety that enabled him to see God's judging and avenging character. So looking at 1 Kings 11, So the Lord said to Solomon, this gives us the outcome, Because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line of Edom. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death, but Jeroboam arose and fled Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. We need to get this. Solomon's desire for multiple women and the foreign gods they led him to worship had implications far beyond his lifetime. His desire for multiple wives was at the heart of the division of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. Hidden sin, blatant sin, has ramifications far beyond our own lives. Um, if you don't have kids, it'll make your life very difficult when you have kids. And if you have kids, they see it. They see how your repentance looks. It affects the way that you shepherd. And so as we look at the list of lessons that we learn from the kings, um, how can we root out pride in our own lives? We go back to Deuteronomy 17. And we need to be doing exactly what God commanded the kings of Israel to be doing. Now it shall come to about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law. 
on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. I think it's important, I've touched on this before, I think it's really important that we're writing scripture. Um, if any of us have been counseled by Tom Angstead, the first assignment from homework is to write out verses. There is something very important and very helpful that happens when we hand write scripture. Um, I would encourage you guys in the next week, two weeks, take a passage that will help you in shepherding your heart away from whatever sin you need shepherding and hand write it out. And then keep it with you and study it, read it. When you're tempted to sin, look at it. Um, one of Jenna's hobbies is calligraphy, which is really intentional writing out. Um, takes forever. And so there's notes all over our house of passages of scripture to shepherd us um, in different ways. Over the kitchen sink, there's a note about shepherding our hearts away from um, anxiety. It's really helpful to have God's word all over the house. And we need to foster that. We need to foster a heart of repentance. We need to be willing to listen to counsel. And we need to respond to our sin the way David did uh, with repentance. A great passage would be that Psalm 51, 1 through 4 to memorize, to handwrite, to have in front of us. So I'm going to close this in prayer and then we're done. Father God, I thank you again for the example of your kings. Lord, you allowed these men's heart to go astray so that we could recognize the repercussions of that. God, it's a blessing for us, and yet I know many were hurt by it, Lord. Thank you for that. God, help us to be open to hear your word, to listen to your word, and to be transformed by it, Lord. Help us to go our way today and understand better the importance of shepherding our own hearts and the repercussions of, of not doing that, Lord. Um, sin waterfalls, it cascades, it creates so much destruction in its path, Lord. And if we leave our hearts unchecked, that will be in our wake. God, help us to, to check our hearts and to shepherd them well and to grow in our love for you, Lord. In your name, amen.